The Geeky Retro Nerd Show is part of the Art, Comedy and Pop Culture Network of Podcasts. How are you doing? <laughs> Welcome to the Geeky Retro Nerd Show. My name is Adam and I am a Geeky Retro Nerd. And this wouldn't be the Geeky Retro Nerd Show if I didn't tell you that this show is sponsored by TruffleShuffle.com. Head on over to the website where you will see a lot of geeky t-shirts and retro gifts. There's, there's loads and loads of great stuff on there and they've got new stuff coming out all the time. Have a look. Um, and and How's this? Use my exclusive discount code of GRNS15. That is GRNS15. And you will get a 15% discount on a spend of £25 or more. How's that? And as well, it's international shipping. So nobody misses out. Everybody can get involved. Would you like to be credited? on the Geeky Retro Nerd Show as an executive producer? Of course you do. How cool is that? Well, you can. And and this is how you do it. There is a link in the episode notes. Have a look in the episode notes. And there is a link to a thing called Liberapay. And Liberapay is a donation website where you can donate to the show and everything that gets donated goes back into the show and it helps the show grow and enhance and involve and make more people aware of it and get more listeners and make the show even better than what it already is and executive producers really really help me do that so if you donate in return you will be credited as an executive producer on the show uh, you will get a shout out on here and you will get your name listed on the episode notes. And the episode notes are published everywhere that the podcast is. So that's Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Spreaker, um, all of the podcast apps. Your name will be in lights, in capitals, <laughs> no less. Have a look in the episode notes now and you will see that on this episode, my executive producers are Marty Wilcox. Glenn Davies, Dave Flynn, Joy Gradwell from Mind Active, and Mark Straker, who is a good pal of mine. So that's Marty Wilcox, Glenn Davies, Dave Flynn, Joy Gradwell from Mind Active, and Mark Straker. Thank you so much. You you have donated to the show, and and like I say, it's all going back into the show to make the show even better. So thank you very much. I'll give you two shout-outs there, didn't I? <laughs> you might get another one at the end of the show Speaking of the show I've got another Belter As they say where I come from <laughs> Another Belter show for you um, Another interview And it's and it's really interesting uh, actually And it's with Julianne Emery Julianne Emery is a fantastic actress From TV shows like Fargo Better Call Saul, uh, Preacher, which is what she is in right now. And she's in movies like Hitch with Will Smith. She's done loads of stuff. And I spoke to her last week and we had a fantastic and really interesting chat. And as well, she's a Star Wars nerd. So keep listening to hear us talk about Star Wars. <laughs> Here we go. Okay, this week I am extremely excited, and I'll tell you why I'm excited, because um, this week I have a, another exceptional guest on the show, and this guest is an actor in tremendous movies and TV shows, including Hitch, Preacher, Better Call Saul, Catch-22, loads and loads and loads of things. A massive welcome to the show for Julie and Emery, Julie, how are you? <laughs> I'm very good, thank you. That was a lovely, lovely intro. I'm giving you the big build-up, Julie. Um, I know, I'm afraid I won't be able to live up to it now. I'm, I'm pretty sure you will. <laughs> um, but I've been really looking forward to speaking to you, because like I said there, uh, you've, you've got a tremendous list of credits to your name. Um, 
and I was thinking to myself, so so where do I start talking? What 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 do we start talking about here? Because you've got that much. Um, but I suppose the hot topic at the moment is preacher. Yes, preacher is in the states, and I think uh, over where you are as well. We're about to air our final two episodes forever. Our season finale is looming quickly. Yes, right? yeah. that, that's right. So I think it's so it's shown on EMC over in the states, and then I think twenty four hours later it's on Amazon Prime. Yes, yes, right that's correct. Yes, yeah. and, and we have quite an active English audience. They talk to me on Twitter a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's massive. Yeah. It's massive yeah. in uh, yeah. the UK. Um, and it, it, what I was going to say was these days, it, um, the the TV shows in the US, um, it, it all seems to be happening the same way now. It's shown in the US, and then it's either on Netflix or Amazon Prime over here, or sometimes on Sky. Um, 24 hours later. Right. That's true in Australia as well. Since we were shooting in Australia, it airs on, it streams on stand 24 hours later. I like that a lot because it allows, I mean, honestly, I think they should just roll it out at the same time uh, uh, internationally, but it allows like an international conversation on social media, which I really, I really enjoy. Yeah, it's, it's, it is a good way of doing it. Uh, and, yeah. I, and I suppose the need to these days because of um, people get a hold of things by other means. Yes. Um, if they, you know, people want it now, people want to say it straight away. Yes. Um, so, so they, they kind of have to do it that way. Yeah. I mean, if you won't do it, they'll do it illegally. But the thing is, you should listen to your audience, right? I mean, I feel like we're still continuing to experience this moment where networks and studios are are starting to listen to how the audience wants to view things and uh, wants to consume uh, their entertainment. And I, th- I think that's good. I think it's a positive step. Yeah, very positive. Yeah. Uh, uh, I really like that approach because the 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 people just want things now, don't they? G- give me yeah, it now. Then, I want to watch it now. I yeah, want to... and, and binge culture has changed things a lot. Like, yeah. it, it, and in some ways you're right. It's like people want it right now. They don't want to wait. We do air weekly on Preacher. I, I think some shows uh, lend themselves to weekly viewing and some shows to binging. I personally binge everything yeah but since i started binging i know there's a lot of talk right now online about how binging can be bad or whatever but since i started binging i watch less crap like i watch <laughs> like you, you know i mean what i watch is higher quality because i put things in my queue that i would like to see and then i move from one to one to one when i have time to sit down so i i, I don't i i hope that we're pushing i don't know the quality of of uh, the art of what we're doing higher and higher by allowing people to binge. Yeah. And, and, and like you say, it doesn't prove the quality, doesn't it? Cause if you're binging, you can watch two, three, four episodes straight away and go, ah, that's not for me. And then you, you go yeah. on to something else. You don't, you know, you don't have to wait each week um, for things, right. but like you say, a preacher is released weekly. Um, yes. And, and so TV shows like preacher, I, I've got a 16 year old daughter um and and things that are released weekly isn't that normal now um and my daughter says things to me like how can you wait a week between <laughs> TV shows? I says, well when i was your age i didn't have a choice yeah was, i mean on, it, Pre- preacher goes up on the streaming service hulu in the states after it's on amc so people can just binge it if they want but yeah, I have a 16-year-old nephew as well who's not yeah. into waiting week to week for anything. <laughs> That's it's it's interesting. It's like going out like the like the telephone, like the the landline telephone, like you know. Our generation coming up is not even going to know what that is. Yeah. Yeah, or or, or driving past the phone box. Oh and yeah, my do- sure. And my, do- and my daughter saying, "What's that?" <laughs> yeah. In in New York, uh, my husband and I split our time between L.A. and New York or wherever we're working. And in New York, I, tourists, there are still some uh, phone boxes. We call them phone booths here um, down in Times Square. And tourists go take their pictures next to them. <laughs> yeah. Like they should be crazy. in a museum. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, Preacher, um, fantastic TV show. Um Julie, for for the for my listeners who might not have seen Preacher before, what is Preacher about? <laughs> it's a very <laughs> difficult show to describe. Um, Preacher, at its heart, is about the battle for humanity's soul. Um, it's about a small town preacher in Texas. Uh, an entity escapes from heaven and uh, goes into him and gives him this a power 
that is uh, threatening to, uh, um, I don't know, to, to God. God has abandoned heaven. He's uh, considering abandoning the human race. And this preacher discovers that and with his assassin girlfriend and vampire best friend goes on a road trip to find God and hold him accountable. Um, that's a long way around, but the show is uh, a dark, twisty, funny yeah. mashup of a lot of different genres, which is why I was interested in it when it first started on the air. I joined in season two and I was already a fan of the show. Um, it's alternately funny and deep and crazy yet grounded it's um it's a it's a really fascinating take on the show you know our show really is um seth rogan and evan goldberg are you know bought the property and adapted it and uh it's really is a mix of their really off boundary pushing humor mixed with our showrunner sam catlin who came to us straight from the breaking 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 bad writers yeah so so it's his sense of character depth with Seth and Evan's sense of crazy boundary pushing comedy and somehow it lives beautifully in one world and I wouldn't have thought that would be true if someone were trying to explain it to me yeah I mean (laughs) when you explain it on paper it sounds insane I mean when you watch it it's insane it's it's an insane show but it's a really fun ride it is. It's great. And and you mentioned there um, Evan Goldberg and Seth Rogen, um, who, of course, you know, things like Superbad, Pineapple yeah. Express, you know, yeah. all those things that they uh, did together. When they came knocking on your door to to, to star in, in Preacher, because like you say, you, you came in at season two. Um, is it a no brainer, Julie, to, to accept? Oh, yeah. I mean, they didn't have to knock at my door. I knocked on theirs. I mean, the, <laughs> yeah. the you know, it was it. Well, first of all, um, I was I, I knew some people in the first season. So I've been watching season one and I was a fan. Um, I'll give pretty much anything AMC does in the States a, a view. I, it's uh, it's yeah. a very high quality network. Yeah. And um uh, when Featherstone came across my desk for an audition, just like a million auditions at that time of year, mm-hmm. I was like, this is the character. I mean, she's playing these personas that I thought there was great opportunity in that. They took the opportunity to add another badass female character to the show in addition yeah. to Tulip, which yeah. doesn't often happen. No. Like, oh, we're only allowed to have one woman who's physically capable. <laughs> it, you know, they, 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 um, I immediately jumped at it and really, really wanted it. Yeah, so so like you say, you play the character Laura, uh, sorry Laura Featherston. Um, what? So you, you you know you said there it's another badass female character. Um, explain Laura's uh, role in the world of of preacher. So this preacher, um, there is an organization mm-hmm. uh, called the Grail. Yeah. And uh, we're a bunch of zealots. Laura is a zealot. No, no question. Uh, the Grail has existed since uh, since biblical times mm-hmm. and has been handed down through the centuries. The Grail is actively involved in bringing about the apocalypse. The Grail believes that the world has, I don't know if we're allowed to curse on here, has gone to crap and we yeah. and it, it has gone to the dogs and um, and we need to start over. Uh, so the Grail is attempting to put in place a new Messiah. Now, for a while, the Grail thinks that new Messiah might be Jesse. So mm-hmm. we alternately are trying to recruit Jesse and destroy him. Uh, but the the Grail, are, I mean, Featherstone's a villain. Featherstone is, uh, mm-hmm. particularly in season four, Featherstone's an action villain. She has a lot of complicated uh, stuff going on with her faith and her devotion. She's a good soldier. She's incredibly good at what she does. She's better than all the men around her at what she does. Um, and she's a thrill to play for sure. And and I was going to say, she must be really interesting to play because it's a, it's, yeah. it's a, it's quite a physical role, isn't it? It is a very physical role. It's, it, I love the physical parts of it. I, I come from the theater world, so I love our fight rehearsals. It feels like our fight call feels like, you know, regular rehearsal to me. Um, I, you know, in my past, I've taken some Taekwondo. I used to dance. It's the, the physical stuff. Uh, I really love, and I even love the wire work. Um, uh, we did a little wire work. If you don't know the show, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but there was some flying wire work this season that I really loved. Um, 
the thing that's most interesting to me about Featherstone is that she has no doubts. Um, she she never apologizes for any action she's taken to uh, you know to achieve her goal. Um, she never sidesteps. She never and she has zero doubts. She is um, supremely confident in her mission and her goal. The only time we see an opposite to that is when she's around Hair Star, who she has this cult like love for, and then she um, then she you know maybe uh, he makes her doubt herself as a as a power play, but, uh, she's, she's fascinating to play. I, I hope I can take a little bit of that, um, confidence, um, into my own, into my own life. And, and, you know, is, is the physicality, the physical side of the role a draw? Is that something that interests you? Is that something when you see it on this, on the screenplay or the script or whatever, and you say, yeah, I'll have a bit of that. Yeah, I mean, I like it personally, but I also think it's important that we continue to see um, physically strong female characters on screen. So I think there's a good obligation to it. To I mean, like I described Tulip and Featherstone's fights as prize fighters. This is not a, a quote girl fight from the past. This is, yeah, this is prize fighters really going at it. Like I challenge any man to get in the middle of that fight. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I, I don't think they would survive very long. I mean, one of them would just shoot him for, for first of all, but, um, <laughs> but it's, it, I think it is a draw and it's a, it's a draw to see a, a woman period. I think who is, uh, confident and large and in charge and, and physically capable. And, uh, I, I like putting that out there into the world, even though Featherstone's a villain. Yeah, it, uh, I mean, I, I definitely wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of Laura Featherston. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, she, I, I mean, she, would, well, she would move you. I said during season two, Featherstone is on a mission from A to B. If you're between A and B, she will shoot you or knife you or she'll kill you just <laughs> because just because it's expedient, just to get you out of the way because you're in the most direct line to be. So I would not, I would not get in in Featherstone's path ever yeah so, so how do you prepare or how did you prepare for this role um Julie you know speaking a lot about the physical side of it but um was, was it an advantage that you came in in the second season you know there was already one season um so you so you know what the vibe of the show was um how because how, it's it's based on a comic as well isn't it so yeah, the, so there, was, I, there was source material from the comics. Did you read the comics? I, I did. Of course, I read the source material in my prep and incorporated some of that into my own backstory. Um, I, um, you know, the, the the trickiest thing on Preacher is hitting the tone right. It's mm -hmm. a very tricky tone as an actor, and uh, I spent some time season two worrying about that. I, it turns out I didn't need to, but I, but I did spend some time stressing about that. I work from a character place, so I like to build my character's full back life as I see it, um, just for myself and my own purposes. Um, and I like to uh, build in the events of their past that turn them into who they are today. Uh, so I spent a lot of time, you know, with Laura's early life in in my own private work, and uh, and then when I book the role. I pitched to Sam Catlin, you know, the first time we see Featherstone is not as Featherstone. It says Laura, the jazz singer. And uh, I pitched to him that she is really brilliant at creating these uh, personas, that she's that it's, she's diabolically good at it, that mm -hmm. you, you really believe that they're a human being walking around the world. And he was very into that. So I spent a lot of time. I, I did the same work on each persona that I did on Featherstone herself, but I did it from Featherstone's head. So I created Laura. I built the character of Laura from, I don't know, from Featherstone's headspace as yeah. Featherstone. And then because each each of those characters are crafted as a, as a long con on whoever, like Laura was crafted to to play Jesse, to to con Jesse, to, to mm -hmm. play on all of the things that would sort of push his buttons. Mm -hmm. uh, Jenny, the neighbor, was crafted specifically to speak to Tulip at that moment. And what mm -hmm. was the most effective way to do that? So I think um, that's a, part of what I love about the show is getting to craft these uh, additional characters that walked around and then making sure I didn't craft them from Julie's point of view, but from Featherstone's point of view and with Featherstone's motivations in mind. 
So, so as mentioned, you know, based on um, the comic book by uh, Garth Ennis and Steve Dillon, um, and, and it wasn't a kid's comic, obviously. No, <laughs> this it's is for no grown-ups. Comic. Yeah, so do not an... buy this for your children. <laughs> it's, for, it's for grown-ups. And, and actually, I was reading earlier on, it was the, the comic was actually released through DC Comics, but through that Vertigo um, yes. line so that they could you know make it a bit more adult and, and have a bit more freedom with it uh, and obviously yes. that's translated in in the tv show um but you know it it there are differences like you say between your character and um how laura featherson's portrayed in the uh, comics isn't there there are i mean that's true of Tulip as well. Comics yeah. in the 90s did not necessarily build out three-dimensional women. No. Um, they were The women were you know, relegated to a very specific role in comics in the 90s. And uh, I think if the show has done anything really well in diverting from the comics, it's that they really built out Tulip and Featherstone to be more full characters. And, um, and I, I'm really grateful for that as well. And that was with Garth's, uh, Garth Ennis's blessing. He, he was into that a lot. All right, cool. Yeah. Um, and, and you do such a great job of portraying that character. Absolutely fantastic. Um, and I was, wa- I was watching a lot of videos on YouTube earlier on in preparation for this. And, um, you know, a lot of the people that you talk to are, are the people they interview are, are full of praise for you and, and quite rightly so, because uh-huh. uh, you do a tremendous job. It's absolutely fantastic. I'm blushing um, right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but as well as yourself, there's, there's a fantastic cast and preacher, isn't there? Yes. Yes. I mean, it's a very prestigious cast. We have Ruth Nega, who's nominated for an Oscar for Loving, yeah. Dominic Cooper, Joe Gilgan, um, Pip Torrens. I do a ton of my work with from mm-hmm. The Crown. And I, I, every, just all, all the way down the line, Preacher is full of not only people who are beautifully right for their roles, but also just really brilliant actors. No one on Preacher wants to let their scene partner down. And that's a really lovely space to work in. Everyone's always... Uh, questioning the the scene, the material, how do we ground this in whatever absurd situation we're in, mm-hmm. what's the human aspect and toll of it. And I think that also has a lot to do with the success of the show is you put human beings in these crazy situations and what kind of toll does that take on them? And, and, that, and that must be a, a huge skill to be able to do that. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I think when you're in a group of, good actors it just feels like the work at hand um it's not work that happens all the time but it's what we all i know it's what i hope for moving from project to project that i am with a group of creatives writers directors and actors who are ready to come together and elevate the material to the next level every step of the way so it's it's brilliant on a show like i never thought i would find that in a comic book series i never ever thought that i would find that environment in that space and that pushing of the work um on a show like preacher but i did it's in this i'm gonna miss those people terribly i mean i miss them already i i was looking at a picture of pip and i yesterday and i had got a little tear in my eye oh. I, I miss yeah i'm gonna miss them terribly so so like you say season four is the last one that's that's yes. it finished so you so you're you're finished with it now um in the last couple of episodes i left to air is, is that just because it ran its course julie it, it, it just felt like it was ready to end i think well i think we we didn't have um a guarantee on future seasons which is often the case in television yeah and the the um i don't know how much the uk knows about this but the hierarchy at amc changed over and um they're very supportive of preacher but i i think there was if there was going to be a question of if if we were going to get to continue then we that our creatives chose to end the series, which I think is the right move. I think, look, in the States, I think we stream over there, but in the States, we're on an ad-supported network, and Preacher just bleeds yeah. advertisers. I mean, we're always offending someone. And, <laughs> I mean, I feel like we're equal opportunity offenders. We offend everyone across the board, but we're always offending someone, and we're always losing advertisers. So it's kind of a miracle nice. that we lasted as long as we did, that we lasted four seasons. And without a guarantee of a fifth or a sixth season, I think it was the right call. I think Preacher's not like a medical procedural. It's not a police procedural. It's it's a show that deserves an ending. And uh, yeah. I think I think that was the right call. I, I like we're seeing that more and more right now. Um, 
cr show creators and showrunners are deciding when the story ends, like Phoebe Waller-Bridge decided that was the end of Fleabag, that this is the end of this story. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. think in terms of creatively, that's a very positive thing, I think. I mean, I know fans want more and more and more and will always want more and more and more. Mm -hmm. But part of the reason Preacher is the show it is, is because it was always going to come to an end. It was never yeah. going to be ongoing. Yeah. So I think it's, I think we're in an interesting moment that way. Yeah. And, and like you say, probably a, a, a wise decision to give it the end and that it deserves because, you know, some, some things do tend to drag on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Longer if, than if, the... Also faced with the prospect of not getting an ending, of leaving it open ended, um, yeah. I think it's I think it's a much more positive thing for us to get to a, the 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 final end of Preacher. I think it's I think it's good. Yeah. So so a tremendous cast um, as discussed, so, but somebody I really like, um, not just in Preacher, but in in the other things he does as well as Joseph Gilgan. Yes. Um, he I, is graphic on the air there now, right? Sorry. Is Brassic on the air now? Yes, there? yes, it he is. He has a show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, but I haven't seen it yet. I haven't seen it yet. I um, saw one episode because Joe showed me in uh, while we were shooting season <laughs> four of Preacher, but it's it's really quite wonderful. I, I mean, Joe Joseph was in um, soaps and things here. I think he was in Emmerdale. I think he might have been in Coronation Street. I don't know if you've heard of these shows. And Misfits. He was on. He was in Misfits. Well, I was gonna. Right? I was gonna ask you, have you seen Misfits? Because that was the first time really that i sort of knew about joseph and i thought misfits was amazing and he was brilliant in it fantastic it's it was absolutely fantastic he's just really really wonderful in it nobody does what joe does and he's no. he's, he's quite a wonderful actor so so preacher um you know great great tv show brilliant tv show um suppose it it, it gives a lot of opportunities as well um because i wanted to ask you actually about you know um you got to go to san diego comic-con yes with, with preacher what what was that like i've always wanted to go to san diego comic-con i don't know if i'll ever get there but that looked that looked pretty cool so and i how, went how was that for you was I, that exciting for you i went during season two and for season four season three i was um out of the country working and but Comic-Con, I mean, look, I'm a fantasy sci-fi mm -hmm. fan myself. Yeah. So Comic-Con for me was, I mean, I put on a baseball cap and snuck out onto the floor both years and, you, you know, just so I could be my own fangirl for a while and <laughs> uh, see the things I was interested in. But Comic-Con is, is, it's wonderful. It's crazy. It's um, exhausting in, a, in, in the best possible way. You there's so much going on there. You just kind of run from thing to thing to thing to thing all day as fast as you can go. They just keep putting you in cars and taking you to the next place. But um, the biggest thing about Comic-Con is Preacher. Uh, the Preacher panel is in Hall H every year. And if you know San Diego Comic-Con, Hall H is 5,000 plus people. Um, people Incredible. spend the night in line to get into Hall H. Yeah. Um, this year, for example, we our panel was right after the Game of Thrones panel. Um, I think Walking <laughs> Dead is that? also on our, I know exactly. It's, you know, it's, um, but, uh, but we, you do and it, we, and yeah. it's full. I mean, I was like, oh, everybody's going to leave after Game of Thrones. Cause we were at the end of the day this year and it was completely full. And it was, uh, it's Hall H. If you make it into Hall H as an audience member, you are a dedicated fan. Yeah. Um, I always say there are no casual preacher fans, but if you make it into Hall H, you're a super fan, right? You you yeah. have take, taken the time out of your Comic-Con schedule to stand in that line and to get into the hall. And the conversation there happens at a very high level because it's it's people who really watch and understand the show. So there's always like a panel part with a moderator and they talk to you. And then there's a large portion of it that's um, where fans get to, you know, line up and ask questions. Yeah. And it's it's uh, I enjoy it immensely. I, I honestly I enjoy the panel more than I do the press. You do. We did like two days of press leading up to it. And um, it's not sound bites like all the press is it's people really want to have a deep discussion about the show. And it's uh, it's, it's a real pleasure. It's a real pleasure to connect with those fans. And we always have a lot of women cosplaying as Jesse, which I love. <laughs> it's pretty fantastic. And we had some women cosplaying as Featherstone this year with the broken nose from season three, which I think is absolutely <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. Cosplayers are very imaginative. Yes. 
anything goes in cosplay anything yeah absolutely it's um i think it's it's interesting because there's a lot of craft going into it these days uh, with makeup with with i mean building one of those costumes is not easy you know and people really are really dedicated to it and frankly just wearing some of them around all day is is its own you know physical endurance test so it's uh i think it's i think it's quite wonderful and and some of them aren't cheap neither no the the costumes they're putting i mean we have obviously we have comic cons here in uk but nothing on the scale of what goes on um over in the u.s um there's a huge difference (laughs) yeah i mean it's you know the u.s has a wide range of comic cons so san diego is the biggest and most commercial one. And then there are smaller Comic-Cons. New York yeah. Comic-Con is pretty large. And then there yeah. are smaller Comic-Cons around the country. Dragon-Con is this thing in Atlanta that's all fan-driven. Yeah. Uh, which is very, also very interesting. There's a ton of cosplay there. Um, it's just a... There, there's... I feel like in the States, there's all different levels of Comic-Cons happening. So there's some more casual ones, and then there's some really massive, dedicated ones. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but it sounds like, you know, interacting with the fans and 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 um, having that interaction is important to you. Um, yeah. I mean, I think any artist, I mean, look, I don't do what I do in a vacuum. I, I believe my place in the world is to see a, a, you know, see a character, see a person. My job is to climb into someone's shoes, climb into their head and yeah. represent them. So hopefully when you see me on screen, you, either you relate to something going on there or you know someone like me. So so hopefully you walk away, you all walk away with a better understanding of each other. And even Featherstone, as much of a zealot as she is, I think we need to understand, we're in a moment in our world where we need to understand zealots. I mean, we <laughs> understand, you know what I'm saying? We need yeah. to climb into that headspace and figure out what makes that tick so we can maybe steer it differently. Like it's, uh, it's I, I think it's, I think it's important. And without, your audience without the fan base reflecting that back to you, you, you don't, you know, I mean, I mean, what's the point if, yeah. if you don't, if you're not able to connect to, to that fan base. Exactly. Listen to myself and Julie talk about Better Call Saul, Catch 22, Habitat for Humanity and Star Wars after this. Um, another brilliant TV show you are in, Julie. Uh, Better Call Saul, you are in season one. And you were Betsy Kettleman. Yes. Uh, and I was thinking to myself, you know, obviously Better Call Saul is uh, a, a prequel to yeah. Breaking Bad. What What was it like getting that role and knowing that, um, you know, the Breaking Bad's one of the biggest TV shows ever. Well, you know, universally. Um, adored and praised and, and it's often touted as one of the best TV shows ever um, was that what is that pressure when yes, you come into a of, TV show like yes, that, a thousand so. times yes of course there is <laughs> I mean first of all when I auditioned for Better Call Saul I put myself on tape for it because I was living in New York at the time and I I, I did not think I was right for it I did not read right. myself in Betsy and so I was like, I'm going to make this work on me. Um, I don't think it's what they want, but I'm going to make it work on me. And maybe they'll see me for something else down the road. Maybe they'll see me, you know, if I'm good enough, they'll, they'll bring me back again. Mm-hmm. So in no way, shape or form did I think I was booking that role. I, I just, um, it, I, I didn't, I didn't think I was, I just didn't think I was what they wrote, but, um, so when I got cast, I was shocked. And then I was like, oh, crap, now I have to make this work, <laughs> like for real. And then Jeremy Seamus, who plays Mr. Kettleman, uh, mm-hmm. and I arrived in Albuquerque, and we had very little information uh, about the. We didn't even know if the Kettlemans did it or not. I was like, oh, did right. we steal the money or did we not? Because it wasn't clear in the first episode. So we had a rehearsal with Bob Odenkirk and, and – uh, and then we had a meeting with the writers who were all in Albuquerque for the first episode. And they were, you know, we were like, so what do you want the Kettlemans to be? And they were like, just do what you did in your audition. So th- I think they were still searching for the Kettlemans as well. They hadn't totally nailed down what they were. 
And Jeremy and I got so nervous about it that we, we had a drink one night and showed each other our audition tapes, which when you're an actor, that's kind of like, I don't know, taking your clothes off in somebody in front of somebody. It's, it's, (laughs) it's, it's very vulnerable. And when we saw what we both did, we went, Oh, I get it. We saw how we fit together. And then in that first episode, Vince Gilligan directed the first episode Mm -hmm. also nerve wracking situation. (laughs) Um, but we took time on the set to explore the characters and try to figure out who they were. Um, and we explored a lot that day, which I'd never done on a television set. Um, and, you know, it it got down to sort of what we ended up with. And Vince was like, yes, do that. And I wasn't even sure it worked on, on screen. Like, I, it was something unlike anything I'd ever done. But when Vince Gilligan says, yes, do that, you say, yes, sir. And you do your best to do it. So. Yeah. It was after that first episode, they threw out our boards and they, they changed the, uh, the Kettleman's became much larger characters and they, they rewrote them entirely. So it was, uh, and that, that doesn't happen on television very often either. Like usually you get on a moving train and you just go, but they took, they had the, the clout to take the time to change, you know, what was, what was coming for them. So it was, that was I feel like one of the luckiest moments of my life, but it was, you know, a conducive situation to a creative panic attack if you weren't careful. And, and, you know, the Kettleman's live, I always say the pocket, you know, the zone where Ms. where Betsy Kettleman lives is so small Mm -hmm. and anything outside of that is just bad acting. And sometimes I couldn't find the pocket until Jeremy Seamus and I were together. And that, again, is something I had never experienced and was super scary because no one wants to suck the Breaking Bad spinoff, right? Like, <laughs> you want to be good on that. <laughs> but it was it was a really it's – a, it's a beautiful set. It's a really kind set, uh, and it was a really challenging role. And, I, I mean, it was just such a, such a lucky, lucky moment. And Bob Odenkirk and I had just worked together on season one of Fargo, so – I, I feel yes. like having that friendly face sitting across from me, um, we were both cheerleading each other through that first episode. So I feel like having that friendly face was helped me dive off that cliff. It was definitely like diving off a cliff, Betsy was. Yeah, it must have been a huge help with that, uh, you know, familiar face from Fargo, which was also fantastic. Um, and, and which had our own um, Martin. Um, yes, Freeman, yes. Martin Freeman in it. Um, in it. And, and he's he's fairly done all right for himself as well. Yeah, the first you know, first time first, first time I saw him was in the office. Oh the, the sure, U, sure. The UK office, yeah. He was yes, Tim. Tim in the office, think, and he was brilliant. I I think the first time I saw him was in Love Actually, and he was so wonderful in it that I looked him up. I was oh, like, right. who is that guy? I looked up he and the gal that he was playing opposite. I I, I just I was very taken with him in that. He's a wonderful actor, and that's a very tricky dialect. I mean, of all the American dialects, it might be the trickiest. <laughs> he did well. Yeah. He did well. He did that very one. well. He did. Yes. And 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 back also such a great TV show. Like like you say, it was uh, there was a lot of anticipation around it because it's the spin-off to Breaking Bad, which is one of the best TV shows ever. Um, <laughs> Nerve wracking probably isn't the the word I would dare say. Yeah, I mean it was. It's so interesting because the set, Vince Gilligan is one of the nicest guys in show business. I mean, he grew up in the mountains in Virginia. He treats people with respect. He's very quick to hand off credit to other people. He's uh, very encouraging. He's a very kind man. And that definitely trickles down to all aspects of the set, all the way through the crew, all the way through the producers, to the PAs, to everybody. So it's a very warm and welcoming set, but it's also... I think everyone feels a lot of pressure on that set because you want to live up to the legacy of what they've, of what they've built. And it's, uh, it was an interesting place to be. I I mean, look, if that had been, there are a lot of stressful sets and if that had been one of them, I don't know if anyone could have done that kind of work on that set. It's, it makes it more conducive to doing good work, to jumping off a cliff. Fab. Um, catch 22. Yes. Is something, uh, that you're in also. And I'll be honest, I haven't seen it yet. Um, what what was it like in there? Because again, another you know tremendous cast again. Yes, yes. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pulling them out the bag, Julie. <laughs> getting <laughs> tremendous gigs. I mean, I've been very lucky. I, I um, so Catch Twenty Two, I 
we I was shooting season three of Preacher when they were auditioning for Catch Twenty Two, and there were only, right. you know, there were only two sizable female roles in the show, and if you can call them sizable, but it's because it's all you know World War Two, and mm-hmm. um, it's it's all men, but um, everybody wanted that gig, and you know my agent sent it to me and they're like, look, just put yourself on tape. It was the same casting director who cast me in, um, season one of Fargo in the U S it was, that was, it was Rachel Tenor. And, uh, he, he was like, and when they sent it to me, I was not right for it. It's, they had a, they really wanted a Marilyn Monroe vibe for it. Um, mm-hmm. so Rachel had sent me notes. Um, and apparently they'd been looking for the character for a while. And I put myself on tape and I was like, you don't book this role like this, you know, like taping myself in new Orleans and sending it in. And then they wanted me to come in the room to meet George um, Clooney and Grant Hesloff and Ellen Kuros, our directors. And I couldn't because we were, you know, shooting a big episode of preacher. So they sent me notes and I taped again. Uh, I sort of did a self tape callback and I sent it in with zero expectation that I was booking it because I, I just didn't think, I just didn't think George was going to cast his wife off a tape. You know, I just, they really wanted to meet people in the room. um, And I didn't look like the character. I just thought there was no way, but, um, but they, two weeks later I got a call and they were like, do you want to go to Italy? And I was like, excuse me? Yes. (laughs) So they, they, yeah. I mean, on the one hand, I should have known better because George and Grant were both actors started as actors um, so of course they're looking for the work and then they're like, oh, we can make her look how we want her to look. So they built me a beautiful wig in mm-hmm. Rome, a, a beautiful, uh, blonde, blonde, blonde wig. They hand laid it. It was gorgeous. And, um, and then suddenly I was on set, but the first time I met anyone from this, the creative staff, the first time I met George was my first day on set. It was, uh, that felt nerve wracking as well. I was like, wow, I hope they actually, yeah, like, I hope they like what's happening now. And when I met George, I was between the hair and makeup trailer. They put my hair up in pin curls and a, 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 a wig cap, which makes you kind of look bald. And, yeah. uh, and then they put my full face of makeup on, which is a lot of makeup for the character. Mm-hmm. She's, uh, she's very out front. And, and I was going back into the hair trailer to get my wig on and I felt a tap on my shoulder and I turned around and it's George Clooney. Uh. <laughs> and he's like, hi, I'm George. And I, all I could think was, oh my God, I'm meeting you like this. I'm in cut off jean shorts <laughs> and a t-shirt and I look bald with a giant face of makeup. Like, but he was, he was absolutely lovely and um, very welcoming. It was a very nice set to be on. Once again, it was a, uh, the tone on that set was friendly and inviting. And, uh, so I think, uh, actors always perform better in that environment. You know, it's in an environment, it's, it's just more conducive to doing better work. And, uh, people really pulled out, you know, like Kyle Chandler's performance in catch 22 is like diving off a cliff. I've never played anyone like Marion. Um, and it was even with all my personas on preacher, I'd never played anyone like her. I think everyone really, uh, really drove their character to the edges of it. And a, a lot of that is because of the environment that George and Grant set up. Yeah. And, and, and I'd imagine Catch-22 presented a, a, a different set of um, challenges, if you like, because I've heard Catch-22 is a bit racy. It's, a, it's, a bit saucy. well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in bed with Chris Abbott a lot. Uh, my character, I'm married <laughs> to George Clooney and I'm having a wild passionate affair with Chris Abbott. So, um, uh, and that's, you know, there aren't a lot, aren't a lot of clothes involved in that situation. So yes, it was racy and, and the, you know, what's interesting about this version of catch is that it is, it has all of that dark sardonic humor, mm-hmm. but it's also the bombing scenes on it in it are, are so effective. And so at, like, you feel like you're inside of it. Um, and I actually had a few service members reach out to me on Twitter and said, wow, I did not expect to be pulled back to a moment like that from my own life while I was watching a show like catch 22. I thought it was just going to be like Hogan's heroes or something, but it wasn't. So, um, I, uh, it's, it really, it's some, I think George and Grant's company do that really well. Like when I read this the script before my audition i was like oh this is like men who stare at goats or um monuments men Mm -hmm. um 
and when you've got a lot of humor, then those dramatic moments can sneak up on you and be incredibly effective if it's handled right. Yeah. Um, so, Julie, uh, something else I wanted to explore with you is, um, so so you started acting really quite young, didn't you? You were about 16 when, when your, your acting career started. And, and you're a little bit older than me. Um, I was born in 1980, and you grew up in the late 70s and the 80s. And, yeah. and I, I was interested to, to talk to you about what, so what, what influenced you? Why did you want to become an actor? Well, I don't, I did not. Or did you want this, to be an actor? <laughs> no, I mean, look, this is an interesting, this, this question has popped up for me a lot recently. And, and, and um, I have a, an odd answer to it. It's, I never, I grew up in a very small town in Tennessee on top of a mountain. I, I was born on a dairy farm. Oh. Um, my town was all farms and factories when I was growing up. It's still mostly farms and factories. It's, I didn't. I didn't consider that it didn't seem like a real choice to me being an actor. The only theater for about a hundred miles was in my hometown and it was mostly community theater with some pros playing all the leads. And they were given a grant when I was um, in high school to, and part of that grant was, was educational. So they provided a drama teacher for my high school for the first time ever. Um, We didn't, the town didn't have a lot of money for, for the arts and stuff. And she recruited me. After hearing me sing in a choir concert, she recruited me to be in a play. Her name was Mel Michelle. She changed my life forever. Um, from there, I went to theater school, but I still, I didn't have any examples of the film and television industry. I thought when I was in theater school, I was like, oh, wouldn't it be great if I could make a living doing regional theater? I, I, I didn't really think past that. I knew that I loved it. I knew that I loved becoming a character. I knew that I loved understanding someone different from me and crawling into their headspace. I knew that I, I also knew that my instincts were not necessarily for a giant stage. My husband's a Broadway actor and his instincts are so beautifully translated on stage mm-hmm. and mine were not. So my journey to what I'm doing now was, um, unusual. I, you know, I, I, it, I took a, when I got out of college, I was doing theater in Chicago here, a great theater town in, in, in the States. Um, and I was just looking for as many ways as I could to make a living. So I start, I took a commercial class and I started doing voiceovers and I started doing some commercials and that's sort of how the on-camera thing slowly rolled right. out for me. But it wasn't, it really was not a, it's interesting. I do have movies I loved in the eighties and the nineties growing up. Um, that influenced my life a lot, but I never looked at them and thought, Oh, I could do that. I, it just didn't, it didn't occur to me. I, I think my life was just too far removed from it. Yeah. And it, the reason I asked Julie is because, um, when, when I was researching for this conversation and, and I was um, looking at things online, um, about it, something that cropped up a lot of times was star Wars. Yes. Do you like star Wars? Star, star Wars, Wars <laughs> changed everything for me. Like, Star Wars, I mean, I think that's true of a lot of people in my mm. age group. Um, mm-hmm. I think um, I didn't see the first one on screen. I was too little. Um, I think Empire Strikes Back was the first one I saw in theaters. And, you know, I, my mom was a single mom. Like, taking us to the, to the movie theater was a big deal, um, yeah. was financially a big deal for us. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... It was, and my mom is not a sci-fi fan, so she went purely just because my brother and I really wanted to go. But seeing Princess Leia pick up a blaster and say, you're going to get us killed and start shooting the bad guys. As a young girl growing up, that was massive for me. I was was a tomboy growing up. I kind of felt like I didn't really belong anywhere. Um, It was, there were not many examples of someone like me on screen and I, not that I considered myself like princess Leia, yeah. but, but seeing her take command and take action was, was new for, for girls my age. I mean, look, I, when I saw, when I saw Ray on screen the first time mm-hmm. I, I cried. Cause I was like, God, if I had had this when I was eight, nine, 10 years old, it would have meant everything to me. Yeah. So it was, you know, I think, 
oddly, Star Wars, I became a massive Star Wars fan because of feminism in a big way. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, it really, and it also, I was all, always, I was always a big reader. I was reading a lot of fantasy books. I was reading, I read like a maniac. I was always looking to sort of escape my small town. I was always yeah. looking to sort of, uh, I was big into escapism. Um, and Star Wars really just, was a, a massive spark for me. I mean, we also grew up, my stepdad, when I got a little older, was a massive James Bond fan. So oh, yes. on snow days, we watched Star Wars movies. We watched all the 007 movies, which to me felt like fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like it Certainly. felt very exotic and, you know, fantastical. And um, um, I had, let's see, at one point, my stepdad had a beta, a beta max and a laser disc player and then a VHS. Uh, so we had a lot of different media going on at some point, but he, um, it was it, the last Starfighter I was a massive fan of. And uh, I'm not yes. sure if Star Wars sparked the sci-fi for me, if I was always headed that way, but, um, and I hear they're making a remake of the last Starfighter and, oh, I hope yeah, it's good. I was going it's to one say, of my it's, favorite. it's being written by Gary Witter who wrote yes, uh, Rogue I, One. I follow him on Twitter. I so know. do I'm I. Very, he puts up he puts up some art with about it and stuff. It's very exciting. It is. Yeah. It's super exciting. Yeah. I can't wait to see what they yeah. do there. I mean, look, sci-fi for me. I was also a Trek fan, so Next Generation is my Trek. Um, All right. And I was also a massive. And I know you're not supposed to like Star Wars and Star Trek at the same time, but you know, <laughs> some of us are complicated and we like both. Um, so I think. What I liked about Star Wars, what I liked about Star Trek, what I liked about those series is that they were able to talk about social issues in a digestible way. Yeah. In in a way that didn't, you know, trigger people so immensely so that they couldn't hear the messaging. I mean, I liked that they were talking about real things but sort of in disguise. Yeah. I, mean, was, I, I, you know, I, I, I loved that. And I loved that there was, we were imagining a world. I mean, look, when Kate Mulgrew became captain of the enterprise and Voyager, I was like, yes, yes. You, you know, so <laughs> it was, I, I liked that we were, I mean, I, I liked the idea that there was a future opening up for us, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like you said uh, earlier on about Ray, in movies like, um, I don't know, Captain uh, Marvel. You know, I take my daughter to see movies like this. And as a parent, it, it, it's it's good to see. Yes. Um, it, it's a good feeling um, for, for my daughter to see um, women like that in cinema. Uh, and as well, Ray was a, the character of Ray in uh, Force Awakens was a huge reason why I went back to the cinema several times to watch. Yes. Force Awakens over and over. Yes. I thought Ray was fantastic. Well, they also she they deal with her head on. She's like, "Stop grabbing my hand. I can yeah. run." I mean, yeah. she's like, they really deal with some of our tropes that have infected movies for a long time. Yeah. Uh, in a very head on way, and I love that Wonder Woman. When I saw Patty Jenkins Wonder Woman, and I saw all of those Amazons storming the beach to fight mm -hmm. the Nazis, mm -hmm. and it was women of all ages. Right. And women yeah. and they were so powerful. I cried every time I see that scene, I cry. And that's it's not because of the scene. It's because of my what own past, my own history It's because of what it means. And I think, look, I look at my nieces now and I'm like, this is going to be normal for them. And that I'm going to cry about that right now. Like this is just <laughs> seem normal to them that they see these kinds of women on screen. And I uh, I, you know, we're in such a good, powerful moment that way right now. I hope it continues. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, people get upset about it. Well, men get upset about these kind of things. Um, yeah. Particularly with Star Wars, which has been a huge, a massively disappointing um, aspect of the new Star Wars movie. Some but of the it, reactions. It, it makes you disappointed in the fan base, right? Yeah. Oh, look, I'm, look, I'm Team Rose all the way. I don't understand why <laughs> anybody has a problem with Rose. I am I Team Rose. I think she's fantastic. The actress is fantastic. Great. And I've never been so shocked by anything in my life as the backlash to Rose because Rose was written to be us. Rose yeah. was written to be fans. She's a fan of Finn. Yeah. When she meets him, she's like, oh, my God, I'm meeting you. Like, she is literally written with the voice and from the point of view of the audience. And 
I, you know, it's interesting when I talk about, I was a tomboy and I didn't feel like I belonged anywhere. This is part of the reason why, because girls weren't supposed to like Star Wars. Girls weren't supposed to like Star Trek. Girls weren't supposed to, um, climb trees and play baseball and be actionary. And, um, that was actually true in our society. And this is, we, we're still seeing that hanging on. I mean, I think it's amplified, um, because of, you know, social media, Yeah. but you know, I guess there's always going to be some kind of backlash to any positive step forward. And this is what it is. But, you know, I, I feel like they need to just get on board with it because we're not going back. You know, it's I don't I don't know why any studio would look at a fan base and say, you're right. We only want men to come yeah. see this. <laughs> like we're oh, in the U.S. <laughs> women are a little over half the population. Like, I don't know why you would. <laughs> Why would you ever look at a fan base and say, we just like to X out 50% of the population? I, I just, I don't see it's, that happening. It just makes no sense whatsoever. Would you like to be in a Star Wars movie, Julie? So this is a really, I get asked this a lot. And of course, look, if you get offered a Star Wars anything, you say yes and you go do it, right? But I I tested for um for Star Trek Enterprise, <laughs> And there we got to it. Yeah, I I didn't get it, obviously. But like I there came a point in the audition process when I looked at my husband and I was like, do I really want to know what happens, what you do when when you get hit by a photon torpedo on the Uh. on the deck of the Enterprise? I was like, I don't it might blow it for me. I'm very happy being a fan of Star Wars. And obviously, if if that job comes along, you say yes, 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 a thousand times. Yes. But but I'm very happy, you know, sitting on the sidelines and being a cheerleader. It's an interesting perspective, really. Yeah, um, well, I you mean, know, not... you, you see how the sausage gets made, right? So, so and sometimes that's <laughs> really cool, and sometimes it's not. So sometimes <laughs> you watch things, and you're like, oh, they're just, like, throwing their bodies around. And, yeah, yeah I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a it's a conundrum for me because I am such a big fan. You know, that's great. Yeah. And, and, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of Star Wars as well. Uh, grew up with it, absolutely love it. Uh, still love it now. Um, my wife and I, well, my wife uh, is pregnant and, um, oh, congratulations. thank you. And we, and we had the scan on Tuesday and everything was okay. So we could finally tell people. So I did a little, um, announcement video based on a star Wars trailer. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's, <laughs> that's how fantastic. much of a nerd. That's how much that's of a nerd fantastic. I am. But, but I, fantastic. but I did, but I did spot on your Twitter account that you are a sci-fi fan. And right. when I was when I was looking for stuff about you, I was like, oh, yes, you like Star Wars. <laughs> I'm a massive Star Wars fan. I really am. And, and, and uh, you know, even even episodes one, two and three, which I didn't think were great. I still gave them my money and went to the theater. You, you know, I did. And yeah. I think I think I think we need Star Wars right now. We need to believe we need hope. We yeah. need we need to believe that there's a light side um, and that it can, you know, can win. Come, come from decimation that that you know even when you think all hope is lost that there is a spark i think it's a very powerful strong message and it's something we need right now in our world it is um, i mentioned your twitter account before i was i was um looking through your twitter feed and i, I noticed something interesting that you were doing or you were tweeting about last night and i, and I think you've been participating in as well as the the habitat for humanity yeah so so you saw a lot of habitat streets yesterday i was the uh, guest host for a twitter uh, a twitter party for habitat yesterday all right um, do you i know habitat does go around the world and build internationally but i don't know if it exists over there so habitat for, for humanity is an organization that um builds houses or rebuilds houses i mean mm-hmm. the goal is to put people who are homeless into a home. Um, I started working with them when I was a teenager in Tennessee um, and happily have come back around to uh, finding the Los Angeles organization here. I do a lot of builds with them. I like roof crew, roof crew, roof crew rules. Um, um, But it's, uh, it's very rewarding. And it's Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of hands-on physically volunteering it's the most rewarding thing I think I've ever done they do a lot of work with homeless vets here they do a lot of work with families with uh, disabled kids or differently abled kids um they do a lot of work with uh it's interesting when you when you put a family into a home 
you see the effect on the kids immediately. Their grades go up, the percentage, they're, they're, you know, the percentage, the likelihood that they're going to go to college jumps immensely. Right. Um, so you are changing that family yeah. tangibly for generations to come and therefore changing your own community and changing your own world. Right. So I, I think it's uh, I think it's a massively important program. Um, now, Habitat does a lot of work with uh, like we went to Houston when the hurricane hit there and so many of those houses were gutted. Um, I did a lot of work uh, in Staten Island when Sandy hit New York. Um, right. It's they 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 they're planning trips to Puerto Rico. They did trips to Mexico after the earthquake hit Mexico City. So they're they're doing a lot of rebuilding now as well and helping after climate disaster strikes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that an organization like Habitat is only going to become more and more and more and more imperative. Like in yeah. in California, we're there's still Habitat still rebuilding a lot of the homes that were lost in the fires two years ago. Right. So it's I think it's a really good positive organization. But you know, here's my thing: whatever you think is wrong with the world, or whatever you think is a good idea, go just go volunteer. Just go. Mm-hmm. If you don't have money to donate, they always need your time. Yeah. And they probably need some sort of skill set you have. Um. And you don't have to do it. Look, I'm away shooting a lot. Habitat lets me, I can go on, jump onto a build whenever I'm available and around. So an organization will find a way to utilize you if you want to just participate in something that you think is helping the problem. Yeah. Um, Do something that, that makes even a small difference and it will make your day feel a lot better. And that's a really, really positive message, isn't it? And because yeah. and I, I first noticed it because you had a I seen a photo of you with a hard hat on and you were drilling something or yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. really really getting stuck in oh yeah uh-huh. yeah. Um, yeah I mean look they, they also they teach you all day but it, again it doesn't have to be habitat whatever whatever yeah. it, you, you can find I mean look with the internet now you can google in your community and uh That's and right. find find a really positive thing to do and even if you can only do it three times a year go do it if you yeah. can do it once a year, go do it. Just take a step toward making your community, your country, your world, your, you know, whatever, you know, whatever issues you're walking around, just take a positive step. So what's next for you, Julie? What have you, are you allowed to say what you're working on now or what's coming up next? I am currently shooting season six of Bosch. Um, that streams on Amazon prime in the state. So I imagine it's on Amazon prime everywhere. Yeah. Uh, that'll be out in the spring. I have All a right, little cool. tiny movie called three days with dad. That's just starting to make its way out into the world. And I have a film coming up called walk away, Joe. Um, we don't have a release date yet with Jeffrey Dean Morgan and David Strathairn coming soon. Cool. I'll keep an yeah. eye out for them. Definitely. So keep him busy. Yeah. Yeah. Very busy. Yeah. Um, and, and rightly so. Cause, uh, yeah, yeah mega talented really really great that's that's very sweet thank you um julie thank you so much for talking to me thank you so much for coming on the show my listeners are going to really enjoy this conversation as have i likewise thank you so much for having me this was lovely this was like having a chat over tea instead of an interview it was great I was thrilled to bits that she gave me that compliment. Well, I took it as a compliment at the end there because that is the style I try to go for on the show. Uh, The bit you don't hear is when I tell each guest that I don't really have a set list of questions. I mean, I have questions, but I don't have a set list. I just like to go with the flow of the conversation. And I think my guests so far have been really receptive to that style. So I was really pleased when uh, Julie gave me that compliment at the end. It wasn't so great. She's been in loads of brilliant stuff. She's so lucky. Well, she's not lucky. She's earned it because she's great. Um, but Better Call Saul, Preacher, Hitch, Catch-22 and all the other things that she's got coming up, brilliant, absolutely fantastic, a real, real talent and I, and how lucky am I getting her on the show, absolutely brilliant, chuffed to bits. Now normally at this point in the show I'd be telling you to listen on an app called Podcoin but Podcoin is gone, it is no more, I don't know why, I only found out I wasn't told, I just, I went onto Podcoin the other day and it was gone. 
So I, I, I did a bit of research and I hunted around and it's gone. It's finished. So no more PodCoin. But never fear. The show is on every podcast app you can think of. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Spreaker, all the main apps and the other ones as well. <laughs> it's on there. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please consider giving it a rating and a review because it really helps get the show noticed and I would be ever so chuffed. So I've just got time to once again thank my executive producers, Marty Wilcox, Glenn Davies, Dave Flynn, Joy Gradwell from Mind Active and Mark Straker. Thank you so much. Your contribution is, is so appreciated. Um, and thank you for putting your faith in the show, I suppose. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. I really do. I, I found Julie super interesting. I hope you did as well. I'll speak to you next time. Thank you.